0: Section 7 of The Red Lamp by Mary Roberts Reinhardt This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Sunday, July 15th. The one pleasure that never palls is the pleasure of not going to church. Again, as I recorded once before, a quiet morning and I am still at large. Jane has gone. Sometimes I suspect Jane of throwing a up to Providence in this matter of church-going, almost, one might say, of bargaining with the Almighty. I will do thus and so, says Jane to herself, and in return I have a right to ask thus and so. Yet she asks little enough, a quiet life, peace, and if not active happiness, that resignation which after the hot days of youth are over passes for contentment. And as she went out this morning, demurely dressed in the sabbatical restraint which is a part of her bargain, I felt rather than said a small prayer for her, that she who asks so little may keep what she has. And Jane is worried. She knows nothing, but she suspects everything. By that I mean that she is somehow aware, after her own curious fashion, that there is something wrong with her world. She watches me, when I am not looking at her. She has an odd rather furtive dislike of Dr. Hayward, and she is almost criminally forwarding Edith's love affair. Since Halliday was brought here, Jane and I have shared her bedroom, and this morning, buttoning my collar, I said, "'The sooner that boy goes back to the boathouse, the better.' "'Why?' she demanded almost militantly. "'Well, if you can't see what's going on under your eyes, my dear,' "'I don't see why it shouldn't go on. "'There's not too much love in the world. "'Nor enough bread and cheese. "'We didn't have very much when we started, William,' she said, "'looking up at me wistfully. "'And we haven't much more now,' I said, and kissed her. "'But the plain truth is that Jane's nerves are shaken. "'She wants Edith settled. "'She would like nothing better than a speedy marriage, "'if that would take us back to the city at once. "'All her old hatred and distrust of this place "'have been steadily reviving, "'and the attack on Halliday has about eaten away her resistance.' All life is the resistance of an undiscoverable principle against unceasing forces, and my poor Jane, after years of protected life, is only discovering those unceasing forces. Later, poor Carraway's body has been found. The tide was unusually low at two this afternoon, and a yawl from Bass Cove, crossing the bay, saw it floating face down, and recovered it, not without difficulty. The poor lad had been tied with the end of an anchor rope, and the anchor thrown over with him. Thus, for days, the body has been only a few feet beneath the surface, floating at the end of its tragic tether. From the doctor, making his afternoon call here, we heard the details. He was summoned as soon as the body was brought in, and made a hasty examination. From that, it appears that Carraway was beaten over the head first, and then thrown into the sea. He was probably dead before he touched the water, is Hayward's opinion. Of course, the autopsy will tell that. If there is no water in the middle ear or the lungs, we can be certain." But from Peter Geis, who wandered in this afternoon after salvaging certain of his personal possessions from the sloop, we learned other facts. Thus, Peter declares that the man who killed Carraway was a sailor, or at least knew how to use a rope, sailor fashion. And as Halliday said to me, aside, this was cheering news, for my best friend could not accuse me of any nautical knowledge. The body, it seems, was tied with two half-hitches around the wrists. From there the rope extended to the ankle, with similar half-hitches, and to these ends, again, the anchor had been affixed. To my query as to whether such a proceeding would not take considerable time, Peter says not. Two half-itches is about the quickest and easiest tie there is, he assures me, and the best to hold. If it slips one way, it holds another. There is, it seems to me, a certain relish in Peter's account of these gruesome details, Augusto in the telling. Like the ancient Greeks, Peter's literature is purely oral, and he has by accident stumbled on an epic, but the recovery of the body has roused the neighborhood to fever heat, there have been those, up to now, who have half believed that Carraway had been the victim of an accident, had somehow stumbled and fallen overboard, and to prove this they brought out the fact that, like many of the men on the water side, he could not swim. There were others, too, who still inclined to the belief that some supernatural influence had been at work, that Carraway, indeed, had been the victim of some otherworld foul play. But even these superstitious folk cannot now blame the red lamp. Carraway has been murdered by hands which wielded the oars that struck him, and which tied the half-hitches which, if they slipped one way, held the other. The anchor presents the only possible clue, and that is a feeble one. There was no anchor in the boat Carraway took out. On the other hand, there was a sort of half-hearted recognition of it by Dr. Hayward, as one stole him from a small knockabout sometime late in June. "'Of course all these anchors are as like as peas,' he said this afternoon, "'but the boys down at the wharf say it's mine, and they can tell two fishhooks apart, same size and same kind.' The county authorities have finally roused themselves, and the sheriff, Benchley, is in Oakville. Under the excuse of examining our float, Greeno brought him out, and Halliday dressed and went with them to show where he had found the knife. On their return, they stopped in and looked at my car. When Halliday came back, he was grave and quiet. In vain did Edith try to coax him into his usual lightheartedness. While I have no idea as to what happened, I can make a fair guess, for he announced at supper that he was through playing the invalid. "'It's time for me to be up and about,' he said." Benchley has increased the country's reward to $2,500, and this with Livingston's makes 3000 As a result, until Twilight frightened them back to their hearths, the vicinity was filled this afternoon with amateur detectives. According to Annie Cochran, one of them was skulking around the hedge of the main house when Mr. Bethel saw him and drove him off. "'Just what that irritable and exclusive gentleman makes of the situation I do not know. He must have learned, through Gordon, of our trouble here, but he makes no sign.' Now and then, but not often, I see him on the terrace, and if he acknowledges my finger to my cap I do not see it. He is so consistently unpleasant that one must respect it as consistency of any sort is respected. My own position is rather strengthened than weakened by today's developments, and I imagine Greeno himself is somewhat at sea. Not only am I no sailor, and obviously no sailor, but I am not a physically muscular man. In the pursuit of English literature the wear and tear is on trouser seats rather than on muscles. In ten years my one annual physical orgy has been putting up the fly screens each April, I could no more strangle a man than I could bulldog a steer. And, unless Greenough is more beset with prejudices and theory than I think he is, he must know this. He has, in addition, a slowly growing list of qualifications, all of which the murderer must possess, and few of which are mine. Thus, the murderer is physically strong. I am not. The murderer, or at least Halliday's assailant, wore a soft, dark hat, well pulled down. I have here in the country a golf cap and a summer straw. No other. The murderer had a sailor's knowledge of a rope, I haven't the slightest knowledge of a rope except that it is used on Mondays to hang out the washing. On only two points do I plead guilty, and there with reservations, for the murderer shows a knowledge of the countryside, not only equal to my own, but better, and Halliday says he got into the car as would a man of middle life rather than youth. I am middle-aged, if that be not the next period just ahead and never quite reached, until some day we waken to find that we have passed it in the night and are now old, and taking an ingenuous pride in that age. July 16th. I am facing an unusual quandary, which is, shall I or shall I not attend poor Carraway's funeral tomorrow? What is the customary etiquette under the circumstances? Does the suspected agent of the death remain decorously absent, the only one in the entire neighborhood so missing? Or does he go, with a countenance carefully set to show exactly the polite amount of concern, and be suspected as the dog returning to his vomit? There is an old theory, I would like to question Greeno about it if I dared, that your true murderer has an avid curiosity as to the work of his hands, that, against all prudence, he returns to it, under these circumstances, what shall I do? Compromise, probably. Send more flowers than I can afford and stay at home. The same sort of compromise which I effected with my soul yesterday when I gave Jane a rather larger amount than usual for the collection plate. One of the reporters who has been hanging around the vicinity since the recovery of the body approached me today on a possible connection between the murder and the attack on Halliday. I found him coming out of the garage, but as Greeno had carefully erased the symbol on the seat cushion, I doubt if he had found anything valuable. He pried me with polite questions, but I evaded him as well as I could. "'But don't you personally believe there is some connection?' he insisted. "'I should have to have some proof of such a connection.' "'And you have none?' he asked, eyeing me closely. "'I imagine you know at least as much about it as I do. Have you found any?' Perhaps my attitude had annoyed him, or perhaps he merely had the discoverer's pride in achievement, for he put away the handful of yellow paper on which he had made no notes, and smiled. "'I haven't found any connection,' he said." But I have found something your detectives missed, Mr. Porter. I have found where the fellow hid after the crash, when the other car was rescuing Mr. Halliday. But the odd part of that discovery, to my mind, is not that hiding place, nor Greeno's failure to locate it. As a matter of fact, I doubt if Greeno has ever looked for it. He seems to have taken for granted that Halliday's assailant merely escaped the wreck and made off in the dark. No, the point that strikes me and struck Halliday when I told him is the intimate knowledge of that location shown, and the quickness with which he took advantage of it. Note: In view of what we now know, I imagine this is an error. The chances seemed to be that he was thrown into the mouth of the culvert, and that the lights of the oncoming car showed it to him. Crossing the road, according to the reporter, and about fifteen feet from where the car was ditched, is a small culvert. Hardly a culvert, either, but a largish clay pipe designed to carry the drainage of the higher fields on one side to the lower on the other. "'Have you searched this pipe?' I asked. I looked in, but if I'd had a pair of overalls, I'd have gone in. But as the only clothes I have with me are on me,' he smiled again. "'It's a good job for a ferret.' "'He gave me up reluctantly at last and prepared to go. "'But you think it's only an ordinary case of hold-up?' he asked. "'I think it's a damned unpleasant case of hold-up,' I replied, and he went away, "'but I have been thinking of his phrase since his departure. "'How much of the present world disorganization lies in that very use of the word ordinary?' "'Time was when no hold-up was ordinary, "'and an act of physical violence or a murder caused a shock that swept us all.' Is it true, then, that one cannot turn the minds of a people to killing, as in the recent war, and then expect them at once, when the crisis is over, to regard life as precious? And is this the reason Greenau spoke of its being a queer time in the world? Is every criminal, then, merely seeking escape from reality? But why the word criminal? Was not I myself seeking to escape it, when on June 16th I wrote in this very journal, Yet what is it that I want? My little rut is comfortable, so long I have lain in it that now my very body has conformed. For the rest of this afternoon I have made my will. To my dearly beloved wife, Jane Porter, I bequeath, etc. There is something strangely comforting in making a will. It is as if one has completed the last rites, and now, with such complacence as may be, he faces whatever is to come. Like Ishmael and Moby Dick, I survive myself. My death and burial are locked up in my desk. I am, quote, like a quiet ghost with a clear conscience, sitting inside the bars of a snug family vault, close quote. A ghost, too, I begin to feel, among other ghosts, Ignored as I will, there is a certain weight in the slowly accumulating mass of evidence at my disposal, a weight and a consistency which have commenced to influence me. I am bound to admit that, if I were able to conceive of the survival of intelligence beyond death, I could also conceive that poor old Horace has been on hand during some of our recent experiences. Not Thomas's George, the spirit evoked by Mrs. Riggs, and still surviving in the lamp, not some malicious demon, frightening honest folk by ringing bells and pinching women in the dark, but a mind like my own, only greater in its wider knowledge, and painfully trying in its bodiless state to communicate that knowledge to me. The sum total of evidence is rather startling. A. Jane's photograph taken on class day. B. Drunk's refusal to enter the main house persisted into this time. C. My own curious telepathic message relative to the letter. D. Jane's experience under the red lamp in the pantry. Doubtful. E. Halliday's lights over the marsh. Again doubtful. It may have been the unknown, finding the boathouse occupied and seeking a way to the beach. F. My own experience in hearing Uncle Horace's peculiar cough and smelling the odour of his asthmatic pastilles or cigarettes. G. Jock's peculiar conduct at the same time. H. Peter Geis's vision on the sloop and his identification of it. Yet Peter is a staunch supporter of George. Had he been looking for such a visitation, would he not naturally have seen George? I. And the fact that this vision corresponds in time with the attack on Halliday. In this attempt to refresh my memory, I have not included Jane's premonition the night Carraway was murdered, or her dislike and distrust of the house, nor have I included the vague stories of haunting told by Mrs. Livingston, Annie Cochrane, or Thomas. Of the latter, they are not only beyond my personal experience or contact, but they are, if the word may be used in such a connection, apparently without motive. With Jane, too, I feel that a faculty which enables her to rise in the morning without seeing her clock may be extended further without touching the supernatural. I grant her a strange power, possessed doubtless by many criminals and a few human beings, of being able to see and hear what cannot be seen and heard by normal eyes and ears. But as I grant this same faculty to Jock, it seems to me to be rather a question of ordinary limitations than of a peephole, as I may put it, into another world. On the other hand, I must not disregard the fact that Jane seems an essential part of the phenomena which I have recorded. On the two occasions when I have had the strongest impression of some disembodied presence, she has been asleep nearby. In the case of the photograph, it was Jane who operated the camera, in the pantry of the main house it was Jane who saw the face behind her, reflected in the window, and so on. I am driven to wondering if, in some states, Jane herself does not provide the medium for these manifestations, whether she does not throw off some excess of vital matter in which the poor naked and disembodied intelligence may clothe itself. But that is to accept the whole theory of spiritism, and I am not prepared to do that, to travel with Cameron and Little Pettingill, weighing the dying with the one, and claiming that the purely chemical loss of weight is the weight of the soul, and sitting in the dark with the other, asking non-physical intelligences to commit various physical acts. Putting their belief in eternity into the grasping hands of a paid medium, and seeing God in the pulling of a black thread. Which reminds me of an amusing conversation at luncheon today, Halliday's last meal with us before returning to the boathouse. "'What becomes of all the mediums?' Edith asked suddenly, apropos of nothing at all. "'What becomes of all the hairpins and dead birds?' I asked, not too originally. "'But it is queer,' she persisted. "'These women come and make a furor then all at once they disappear.' "'They get discovered and then quit,' Halliday said. "'And of course even a medium must die in time. "'Not that they actually die, of course. "'They simply go into the fourth dimension.' "'And what's the fourth dimension?' "'Why don't you know?' he asked. "'The simplest thing in the world. "'It's the cube of a cube, and once you get into it, "'you can turn yourself inside out like a glove. "'Not that I see any particular use in that, "'but it might be interesting. "'Edith, it appears, intends to write an article on mediums. "'July 17th. "'I do not like young Gordon. "'He has little enough time to himself, "'only, I gather, an hour or so after luncheon "'while Mr. Bethel sleeps, "'but he spends that time here, if possible. "'Edith snubs him, but he is as thick-skinned "'as one of the purposes which roll itself in the bay.' "'Why, if you're so clever,' I overheard her today, "'don't you go out and do something? Use your brains.' "'It takes brains to do what I am doing,' he said. "'And don't you forget it.' But as to what he is doing, he is discreetly silent. There is a book underway, but he parries any attempt to discuss it. Also, he seems to delight in investing Mr. Bethel with a considerable amount of mystery. "'The boss is having one of his fits today,' he will say. "'What sort of fits?' "'That would be telling,' he says craftily, and ostentatiously changes the subject.' Edith, who has a very feminine curiosity, has questioned Annie Cochran, but without much result, the fit days, so far as we can make out, are merely days when the invalid is less well than others, and mostly keeps his bed. Annie Cochran, however, has her own explanations of them. She believes that those days follow nights when George has been particularly active, and when presumably Mr. Bethel has not been sleeping on his good ear. And as proof of this, she produces the fact that twice now, having left her tea kettle empty on top of the stove, she has found it full in the morning. As Mr. Bethel cannot get downstairs unassisted, and as the secretary has always totally maintained that he has not left his room all night, any Cochran falls back on George, and, one must admit, not without reason. Poor Carraway was laid away yesterday, after the largest funeral in the history of these parts, and so ends one chapter in our drama. End, that is, for him. What is to come after, no one can say. One thing has tended somewhat to relieve the local strain. No sheep have been killed for eighteen days, and the altar in the field still remains without oblation. There are, I believe, one or two summer people who still make it the objective of an early morning excursion, hoping to find out at who knows what horrid sacrifice, but they have only their walk for their pains. Maggie Morrison, who passes it every morning in her truck, makes a daily report of it to Clara, and so it filters to the family. Clara says the altar is still empty. I suspect her of longing to lay a chicken on it herself, there is something pantheistic about her. Jane, or Edith as it may be, is silent, reflecting on the meaning of pantheistic. It is Maggie, too, who brings us much of our local news. Today, for instance, she informs us that the detective has gone away, bag and baggage, from the hotel, and probably this accounts for the lighter tone of this entry. I am reprieved, at least until some other sheep are killed. Later, Halliday and I, late this afternoon, made an examination of the culvert, or pipe, in which our unknown hid after the accident. We chose a late hour, in order to avoid the procession of cars which winds along our back roads, the further back the better, during the afternoons. In this we were successful, for although, like my own, the general sentiment is one of reprieve, there are a few still who will trust themselves out after twilight. Mr. Logan, the rector of the Oakville Episcopal Church, St. Jude's, had an experience in point the other night. Calling late on a dying parishioner, he ran out of gasoline on the main road some six miles from home. He endeavored to stop various cars as they flew past, but in the general terror no one would pick him up, and after being fired up by one excited motorist, he gave it up and walked back to the rectory. We must have presented a curious study for any observer, working with guilty haste, and I in particular emerging from the pipe covered with mud and a heterogeneous collection of leaves and grasses. Not only was Halliday too broad in the shoulders for easy access, but his injury forbade the necessary gymnastics. There was a time when, half in and half out of the pipe, I could hear him laughing consumedly. But I found nothing, save that undoubtedly someone had preceded me into it. A man skilled in such matters might have read a story into the various marks and depressions, but they were not for me. I retreated, inch by inch, and was again free as to my legs, but a prisoner as to the remainder of my body when Halliday called that a car was coming. I had three choices. One was to remain in my present shameful state, another was to emerge and face the public eye, looking as though I had been tarred and feathered, and the third was to retire into my burrow. I retired. With that peculiar venom with which fate has been pursuing me, the car stopped over me and Star spoke. "'Looking over the scene of your trouble?' he said." "'Looking for the clues you fellows can't find,' Halliday retorted easily. "'I could hear Star snort, and then chuckle dryly as he let in his clutch again. "'I'll give you a dollar for every clue you find,' he called, and the car moved on. "'When Halliday gave me the signal, I emerged feebly into the open air and stood upright. "'That was a narrow squeak,' I said. "'But he was looking after the disappearing car.' "'Yes,' he said. "'But I think it was a mistake. "'I should have told him you were there.' "'The net result of the search was not encouraging.' True, Halliday picked up outside the pipe half of the lens of an eyeglass, but there was no proof that it belonged to his assailant. On the other hand, I myself had made a discovery of a certain amount of importance. Halliday had said that the man he had picked up had seemed to be a heavy man, broadly and squarely built, but my experience showed me that no very heavy man could have entered the pipe. We have, in effect, to recast our picture of the murderer, a man of medium size, we will say, compactly if muscularly built. Tonight, sitting down to make this entry, I have missed my fountain pen, and as it has my initials on it, we must recover it tomorrow, if possible. It would be extremely unpleasant under the circumstances for Starr, for instance, in a burst of zeal to find it in the pipe. True, Peter Geiss could swear that, at the moment Halliday was attacked, he and I were looking for a ghost in the rigging of the sloop, but I am at this disadvantage, that they give me no opportunity to defend myself, for they make no accusation. Their method is that damnable one of watchful waiting. Greeno's psychological idea that given enough rope, a criminal will hang himself. July 18th. Edith and Halliday went this morning to recover my fountain pen. Edith, in spite of our protests, determined to crawl into the pipe for it. To this end, she put on my mechanic's overall, in which I oil and grease my car, and very sweet indeed she looked in it, but the pen was not there. She found the cap of it, embedded in the mud, but not the pen itself. It looks as though Star has lost no time. Edith, I believe, suspects something. There is a growing gravity and maturity in her, she tries to show me, by small caresses and attentions, that she believes in me and loves me, but she knows that there is something wrong. And she has, I think, quarreled with Halliday. There was nothing on the surface to show it on their return today, but he declined her invitation to luncheon, and went off, whistling rather ostentatiously, to his bacon and beans at the boathouse. This afternoon, while Mr. Bethel slept, she accepted young Gordon's invitation to go canoeing, and had the audacity to take the canoe, so to speak, from under poor Halliday's nose. According to Jane, she needs a good shaking. There is, I understand, no definite engagement between them. Much as I care for her, Halliday said to me. While he was still invalided here, and I guess you know how it is with me, Skipper, I'm not going to tie her down until I have something to offer her beside myself. She's young, and I'm not going to take that advantage of her. But you do care for her? Care for her. Oh, my God, he said and groaned. Poor lad. Three years, he has figured. Maybe four. Three with luck. And what Edith cannot understand is that he does not dare trust himself for that length of time. The urge that is in him is so different from hers, sentiment and attachment on her side, and strong young passion on his. Hey-ho. When one thinks that a mere ten thousand dollars or so would stop all these heartaches, and that there are men to whom ten thousand dollars is only a new car, well, hey-ho again. I must not forget to enter that Halliday last night believes he saw the red lamp burning in the den behind the library of the main house. He told me the details this morning as he waited for Edith to don my overalls. It was his first night after his accident at the boathouse, and he could not sleep. I had a good bit of pain, he said, and at one o'clock I got up and went outside. There was a sort of dull red light coming from the windows of the library of the other house, and I watched it for a while. It was extremely faint, and at first I thought it might be a fire. Then, as it didn't grow, I saw it must be a light of some sort. He knew the stories of the red lamp, but he also knew I had locked it away, so after a time he started up toward the house. He was about halfway up the lawn when it went out, suddenly, and left him staring but he was curious and he went on. He made a complete circuit of the building, but there was no movement or sound from within, and so he turned and went back again. He believes the light was in the den, not the library, for he saw only a diffused reddish glare, as though it came from behind. He could not, through any of the three long French windows which opened onto the terrace, see the source of that glare. Here, then, is corroboration of my own impression of some few nights ago, but with a difference. For I saw the light itself, a momentary flash as though a breeze had for an instant pushed open the heavy curtains at the den windows, and then had let them fall again. I am convinced that young Gordon has never seen the light, or he would have spoken of it. He is fluent enough about what he calls the spooky quality of the house. It is unlikely that Mr. Bethel, imprisoned in his upper room, can have any knowledge of it. Yet here we have two dispassionate observers, seeing at different times and under different circumstances a light apparently of spontaneous origin and no known cause. Kimmerin says, note... Experiments in Psychical Phenomena, a book I had sent for some days before, that the production of lights is very common. He quotes the appearance of bluish-green lights in the experiments with Mary Outland, the brilliant star-like white lights of Mrs. Riggs, and the luminous effulgence which was frequently seen hanging over the head of the Polish medium, Markowitz. But in no case is the production of red light mentioned, and in every instance this spontaneous production of light is in the presence of a medium. In the case of Markowitz, for instance, I find on referring to him... Following the appearance of the effulgence, usually came the materialization. Sometimes there emerged from between the curtains of the cabinet, while the medium was in sight and securely held, a large white face. Again, it would be a small hand and arm which apparently came, not from between the curtains, but through the material itself. But this is no field of conjecture for a man about to go to bed. My nerves are not at their best, anyhow, and in spite of myself, I find that from behind the slight breeze which is waving my curtains, I am expecting something extremely unpleasant to appear. End of section 7